This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Hey, Com City, as we uh, move to the portion of our service today where we just recognize uh, just the goodness and the faithfulness of, of the Lord. You know, I, I have a tendency to, to sometimes dwell in, in highs and in lows, um, but through everything, God has been unbelievably faithful to me, and I'm pretty confident in saying he's been unbelievably faithful to you. In fact, you know, many of you know that I'm a, a large, a big sports fan, uh, uh, you know, just have always loved sports. And the documentary that was on ESPN recently about the last dance um, obviously featured uh, much of the Michael Jordan story and the Chicago Bulls of the mid 90s, uh, which was my like childhood, um, you know, fan following. I was I just would eat, sleep and breathe Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan basketball. But there was a moment where Steve Kerr was interviewed. Steve Kerr played for the Bulls. He went on to play for the San Antonio Spurs. He coached um, with the San Antonio Spurs for a while and then ended up coaching, now coaches the Golden State Warriors. And he was telling the story of what it was like to lose his dad at an early age. And uh, in the midst of a career that has achieved as much as you could possibly achieve as a player and as a coach, championship after championship, um, achievement after achievement, Steve acknowledged something that happened in his past 20 to 30 years ago and still recognized the hurt of having lost his dad at an early age. What I learned in watching that interview is that the good isn't intended to compensate for the difficult or the hard, but we're allowed to feel both. But as I watched that interview through the filter of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I recognized this, that in the great things that I've gotten to experience in life and the difficult things that I've gotten to experience in life. God has been faithful. He's been good to me. And like I said earlier, I bet he's been good to you. And one of the things that he has done to me so evidently and likewise to you is blessed me. He's blessed us. And when he does bless us, um, he blesses us to be a blessing In fact, we know that from his word, that we are blessed to be a blessing. And one of the ways that we become a blessing is the way that we steward the things that he's given us, the faithfulness that he's provided for us, uh, the gifts that he's bestowed upon us from talent to resources to riches. Uh, And we bless others as well. And the way we do that here at Commonwealth City Church is, is in the way that we faithfully give and honor the Lord in the way that we give. And so you'll see on the screen our uh, graphic on how you can give and how you can uh, be a blessing through the, through the framework of this faith family that we belong to, to bless the nations and to even bless our city. And so thank you for being people um, that steward how God's been faithful and how God's been good to you and to us. You know, in these next few weeks, um, we're going to be starting to journey back into normalcy in some ways. Uh, I know it's been a long time coming. We've sent out some surveys. We've we've tried to hear from you. And so next Sunday at 10 a.m., we're going to be gathering in person for the first time 
since the beginning of March, which seems like forever ago. And we're going to be doing it outside. It might be a little warm that day, so please dress casual and dress appropriately for for the heat. Um, But we're going to meet at 10 a.m. to try to curb some of that heat and humidity a little bit. Uh, A shorter service, but a time to be together. We're going to meet outside here at the BCM. Um, in, in, I think in this back area, we're still making sure we get all the logistics down, but you won't be able, you, you'll be able to find us when you show up 10 a.m. on Sunday, June the 21st. And that will be kind of the, the predecessor for us going back to regular meeting together. And then also on June 17th, which is Wednesday, this coming Wednesday at 6 p.m. here in the BCM, we're going to have kind of a, a come one, come all gathering that is a time of prayer and preparation and in some ways a little bit of a pep rally for us to like get excited and get pumped up to be back together again we'll be able to answer questions we'll be able to 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 really give detailed instruction Um, and also we have some needs that we need you to help us out on in terms of of filling some spots of volunteering and 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 recruiting for some volunteers so that we can be safe that we can adhere to all the protocols and all the standards we can honor one another we can love each other uh, and do so in a way that's safe and secure for everyone to start to assemble and be the body of Christ in one corporate gathering again. So Sunday, next Sunday, the 21st, 10 a.m. here, but Wednesday in between, 6 p.m. inside the BCM um, for anyone that would want to come. We won't have childcare available, but your kiddos are certainly welcome to join us. And as we move into uh, our scripture for today, Kurt is actually gonna lead us off by singing Psalm 32. Um, And so enjoy as, as he sings this and maybe even start to put it to your memory um, as we continue to memorize and really journey in these psalms. Joy, what joy for those whose sins were given and put out of search. Yes, what joy, what joy for those whose sin is covered by the blood of Christ. Confessed all my sin to you. Stop trying to hide all of my, oh, all of my iniquity. And I said to myself, I confess my rebellion to the Lord. And I said to myself, I confess my rebellion to the Lord.
Thanks, Kurt, David, so much for leading us in Psalm 32. And uh, as the people of God, we're going to open the word and then read it together as well. And so um, if you're home and you want to stand, feel free to stand with me. I'm standing, um, but feel free to stand with me and read Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. It says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous one, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. Uh, dear Jesus, we just thank you so much for the truth of your word today. We thank you for uh, what you've given us in this psalm of confession and repentance. We pray that your spirit highlight the places in our lives uh, to confess, repent, and confidently follow you, both individually and collectively. Uh, we pray that for us as, as listeners and learners here today as we hear and respond to the truth of your word. We pray that for us as a people, as the people of God, that we be listeners and learners of your spirit and followers of where you're asking us to um, deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow you and to uh, repent in ways that we can, we can be a part of even corporate recognition of what it looks like to be your family. Uh, Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, Psalm 32, give you a little background on it. Psalm 32 is one of the penitential psalms, uh, meaning it's a psalm of, of confession or, or what you would almost call penance or penance. 
Um, there are seven of those in the scriptures. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, 103, and 143 are, are the, the seven psalms of confession uh, that David writes to the scripture. Psalm 51 is the most notable of those psalms that created me a clean heart, uh, you know, O God, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, talking about have mercy on me, O Lord, and, and you know, wash me and cleanse me. It's one of the the, the most recognizable psalms of David in his confession of sin um, with Bathsheba and with her husband. And we look at Psalm 32 today. We don't have uh, exactly the occasion for why he is, he is moved to this heart of confession, but we do know that it's an important heart for each and every one of us to have. Um, it's important for us to have as an individual. And as we mentioned in the prayer, it's important for us to have corporately as well. The psalm starts with really familiar language. Uh, it starts with the phrase, blessed is the one, or blessed is the one, or blessed is he. Some translations might have that. In fact, this is the first psalm that says that since Psalm 1. Many of us know Psalm 1, blessed is he. As we, as we look back at, at Psalm chapter 1, that was the way that we introduced our series last summer. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on, on his law, or on his way, he meditates day and night. I think it's extremely intentional that David, or the Holy Spirit, guided and moved David to begin this psalm with the exact same language that Psalm 1 began. In fact, if you know anything about being raised uh, in, in a culture uh, of Judaism, that you know, young Jewish boys and, and really in children in general would have memorized many of the psalms. And just like us memorizing our favorite songs or knowing our favorite songs, when you hear a phrase, uh, it tends to, to push play in your mind of, of the rest of that psalm. And, and this one, blessed is, is he, or blessed is the one, much like Psalm 1, tends to take these psalms that are about separate things and link them together. Because while they have separate content, they have a singular confession that God's way is better and it's meant for us to be delighted in. It's meant for us to recognize and to walk in. As we move into Psalm 32, we're, we're going to pick some of this apart as we kind of apply this to, to our lives today. It starts in verse 1. It says, blessed is the one who, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, the Psalms are constructed as poetry, but they don't often, uh, they, they, or they don't often use the same words. And so, in fact, for transgression and for sin, you get two different words, even though for most of us, those words are synonyms. For transgression, it's the word pesha, which means rebellion. So you could read this as, as a revolt. Blessed is the one whose rebellion or revolt is forgiven, whose sin, and we use a different word there, hata, um, whose sin is covered. Now, the word for sin that's used uh, in the Hebrew language right here in verse 1 is really the word for waywardness. It's really the word for waywardness. So blessed is he whose rebellion is forgiven, whose waywardness is covered. You know, this past week, I got a chance to, to take a little bit of a, what I would call like a vacation from my staycation. You know, we've been on quarantine for, for some time, or I mean, not really quarantine, but healthy at home and staying at home and, you know, kind of really limited our life. And this past week, I, I got to 
uh, traveled to both northern Ohio and to Alabama, um, which aren't at all on the way to one another, but was in the car a lot and driving a lot and got a couple days to get away. And uh, I think of random things when, when I drive. In fact, as I was driving through um, northern Alabama, I was kind of on a back road where uh, it is very obvious that the trees had been recently kind of limbed, if you know what I'm talking about. So it was like these huge pine trees in northern Alabama, but there was like this perfect edge along the roadway of where these trees had been, you know, limbed out with, with some saws or with some workers. And it was like this corridor, I mean, just for, for miles of like these super tall, you know, 30 and 40 foot trees, but like perfect edge along the side. And, and as I was driving, I was thinking about like, and sometimes we take for granted how easy it is to get from place to place. If you know anything about the history of even the interstates um, in our country, I think it was, uh, it was President Eisenhower that really made a push to have interstate roadways. And in, in, in actuality, they were created, the interstates were created to be a way for us to mobilize the, the national uh, army and the national troops um, in case there was an issue where where our country was ever at war or our country was ever attacked on this soil, we could have easy access to mobilize troops. Now, obviously, warfare has changed over the past, you know, however many decades. But if you, if you pay attention, every single interstate by rule has straight stretches that would be, would be ideal for planes to land, for us to use them as roadways in the event that we shut down everyone's travel and only use the interstates uh, for military transport. And so sometimes I think about how much we take for granted the ease of access from moving one place to another. In fact, as I drove to Ohio and as I drove to Muscle Shoals, Alabama this week, I thought to myself, how difficult would this trip have been if there were no roads? Now, you know, that seems to be a ridiculous question to ask. I probably wouldn't be taking the trip to those places if there were no roads. But if you think about it, the roadways don't just make places accessible, they make travel efficient. In fact, if you've been to any other countries um, before, maybe some, some developing or underdeveloped countries, uh, you've noticed that roadway travel can be significantly different than it is in a more developed country like the United States or Canada or, or many, many parts of Europe, that the roadways can actually be extremely difficult and, if we're honest, extremely exhausting to navigate and to travel. And in fact, I think it's interesting here that the psalmist, that David writes, blessed is he whose waywardness is forgiven and is covered because waywardness can be exhausting. If, you've, if you could imagine riding in your car over hills and mountains and around trees and you have to navigate patches of trees and land and, and there were no roadways, you wouldn't want to travel anywhere. Your car wouldn't be built for it or your vehicle wouldn't be built for it and your body wouldn't be built for it. In fact, I remember uh, one time I was, I was hiking in Red River Gorge with Ross Allen. And um, what's up, Ross? Be glad that you're watching this. Uh, was hiking with him, and and we kind of navigated off the trail. You know how along the, along the lines of a trail, there's like every you know so many feet. There's a stamp on a tree that shows that you are on the correct trail. We navigated off the trail. We both were convinced we were on it, and then we looked up and we saw like three ridges over where we intended to be, the destination that we intended to be. And we had a moment where we thought, huh? Well, the straightest path to get there is to walk from here to there, but it would have required us to go up and down mountainsides, uh, to navigate hills with no path, with no trail, with no, 
with no predetermined uh, steps to take. And even though it was longer in its journey, it was better for us to return to the intended pathway and to the intended trail. In fact, the Bible says this, Jeremiah chapter six, verse 16, it says that we ought to be people that return to the ancient paths, to the good roads, and there you'll find rest for your souls. Off-roading can be so overwhelming and so exhausting. And what we find out in Psalm 32, right out of the gate, is blessed is he whose off-roading, whose waywardness is covered. You know, I used to love Mario Kart, where you would like fly off the edge, and the next thing you know, the little guy floating in the cloud would like pick you up, bring you back over, and put you back on the track. Like that is in some ways a picture of what it looks like to be restored and to return to God's perfect way and God's perfect law, that his law is a better path. It takes out all the exhausting obstacles and there is no rest for our souls when we make our own path but there is extreme rest for our souls when we walk along the better path that God had intended for us so we look at this concept of what it means for our transgression our sin to be covered the truth is we we need cover don't we have you ever been overly exposed in an area of your life and the only thing you desire to do was to hide if so you're not, in, uh, you're not alone in that. In fact, you're in the company with people like me, with people in the Bible like Adam and Eve, that at the recognition of their sin, what did they do? They hid in a bush and covered themselves with fig trees, but it wasn't an adequate covering, was it? In fact, what we learned from the story of God responding to their sin and dealing with their sin is he made for them what? Clothing and covering. In fact, that act of making covering for Adam and Eve, the first people, uh, was significant that for those, for those humans, for Adam and Eve to be covered in, the, in the, the skins or in the hides of an animal, that an animal had to be sacrificed. Something had to die to cover their sin and their overexposure. And we'll get to that a little more as we move on today. We need cover. In fact, in verse, in verse 2, it says, blessed is, the man who's, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and who there is no spirit of deceit. Um, in fact, this concept of covering tends to run in contrast with a deceitful heart, which is really somebody that conceals. I don't know about you, but I've been guilty of not walking in the confidence of God's covering of my sin and instead tried to conceal it, tried to off-road, tried to make my own path where I could protect the parts about me or the activities of my life or the behavior or the experiences or the attitudes that I was embarrassed by, that I was ashamed of, and that I knew needed concealing. And let me tell you, it's exhausting. How do we know it's exhausting? Well, the psalmist says so in verse three. For when I kept silent, when I tried to conceal, my bones wasted away, groaning all day long. For day and night, the hand of the Lord which we would call conviction, was heavy on me. And my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. That if you've ever been in the same seat that David's been in, with the heavy hand of God's conviction on you, the only way to find relief for that is to move on into what he says in verse 5. He, he kind of does verse 3 through 4 is a not desirable way to live, but verse 5 
is definitely a desirable way to live. Therefore, it says this, but I acknowledge my sin to you and I no longer covered or concealed my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Sorry for that word acknowledge. It actually means in Hebrew origin to acquaint or to let God in the know. Now, here's what we recognize. Our best efforts to conceal the places that we're embarrassed or ashamed don't keep God out of the know at all. He very much knows what's going on. But when we acknowledge and we invite him to know, we, we both recognize that one another has awareness of what's going on in my life. This, this word tells us that there, there is relief at the end of that. There is relief. And in fact, um, he says, I did not cover my iniquity. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I think it would even be better read as I cannot cover my iniquity. It's better for me and for you and for all of us to say, okay, God, I'm caught in my trailblazing. I'm caught in forming my own path. I am caught in my off-roading and I'm exhausted and I'm, I'm weary and I'm, I'm, I'm not built for this. I'm caught in it, and I want to acknowledge to you, I want to acknowledge to me, I want to acknowledge for those with me that I'm better off on your path and on your way. In fact, the commands of the Lord are better viewed not as a punishment, but as an invitation to a better way to live. God's commands are are not to limit or constrict you but to offer you efficiency and freedom in the way you should live that nothing else can accomplish. Check this part out in verse five. This is an interesting uh, part of this, of this acknowledgement. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the iniquity of my iniquity. You forgave the sin of my sin. What does that mean? Well, quite frankly, um, if we are honest about some of the reasons that we confess, sometimes we confess because we feel bad for our sin. We feel bad. We feel bad that we did that. We feel bad that we messed up. We feel bad that we didn't um, do the right thing. We're embarrassed. We're ashamed. And and there can be a heart of self-pity concerning my sin or even a heart of self-penalty concerning my sin. We need to be punished. We need to, we need to make right. I need to earn it. I know for me, like a recovering uh, legalist, uh, or or if we're speaking Enneagram, an unhealthy one when I'm moving in in my uh, levels of stress to, to be an unhealthy one, which is kind of the rule keeper reformer. I know for me, if I have a bad day or I have a bad moment, I try to think, well, if I can have like 10 straight good days, that minimizes the impact of my bad day. That, that kind of shifts the balance and it, you know, and it, it, it kind of outweighs. It's what a rotten heart that is. What a rotten recognition of the grace of God that is. That's not understanding the iniquity of my sin. That's self-pity and self-penalty. But God's word says that he forgives the iniquity of our sin. And for us to have right confession, we don't need to just recognize the wrongness of our sin. We need to recognize the weight of it, the sinfulness of it. And that God doesn't just forgive how we feel about our sin or how we feel about our punishment. He forgives the weight of the sinfulness of our sin, even against him. And he invites us to stand in his court. In fact, David says in verse six, therefore let everyone who is godly 
offer prayer to you that you may be found. For you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. He says that we're invited to stand in the court of the living God that doesn't meet our sin with condemnation. In fact, sings for us. If we were to really dive into the translation of you surround me with shouts of deliverance, sings for us victory songs is what it says. Sings for us songs of victories as if we were the, the person that he is singing to. Kurt mentions all the time that we sing to a singing God. And we see that clearly right here. That in the midst of our sin, we have the confidence to stand before the Lord and not be met with, with harshness. And not be met with, with punishment. But be met with mercy and really be met with justice. It is just for God to sing over us songs of freedom and deliverance. That is just for him to do. And it's just for him to do because of what he did to Jesus instead of what he did to you and I. Because of what he finished in Jesus, we get to embrace and experience songs of truth and songs of deliverance. In fact, the word confession there in this section is the Hebrew word yada. Uh, in, in Greek, if we were to read that, it would be the word homologeo. But it really means that we cast our sins or we agree that God's way, like our way and God's way don't line up and we agree that his way is right, which in, in fact agrees that our way was wrong. And look at this part. Here's a great application for us today in verse 6. Let everyone who is godly, let everyone who believes offer a prayer to the Lord when he may be found. Friends, we don't, we don't find God in our church house. We don't find God on Sundays. If we believe in Jesus, we have a relationship with God ever presently now. So the application is when's a good time to confess and repent? Now. Now, not at the end of the sermon when we pray a prayer or sing a song. Now, right now, you can press pause. Heck, you don't even have to listen to the rest of the things we say. You can spend time in communion with the living God of all creation and say, I agree my way is wrong and your way is right, right now. You can bring that acknowledgement and that agreement right now. And it doesn't have to happen at the one Christian conference you go to a year or the one camp experience or the one mission trip or, or the one emotional church service you're a part of. Like it can happen every single minute of every single day. In fact, in this era of protests that, that we are living in now, many of us uh, have forgotten that even the religion we walk in was birthed out of protest. We are, in fact, Protestant. We are part of a reformation of protesters. And one of the first things that they said, the very first thesis that Martin Luther nailed on the door was that we will be people that constantly repent. When is the time to find the Lord? Now is the time. Now is the time that we are people that perpetually repent. And when we're done repenting, we repent some more. I'm going to pause there. I'm at 27. Um, are we doing the click again? Okay. Yeah, that's fine. So far, so good? Ready?
And then there's a voice change. If we look at uh, voice, verse 8. At the end of verse 7, just like at the end of verse 5, and just like at the end of verse 4, there's this word, oftentimes written in italics, uh, in, in your Bible, and it's the word selah. And it literally just means kind of a divine pause, like take a breath, pause, have a moment of silitude and serenity, maybe reflect over just what was said. In fact, if, if we were rightly teaching this section of the Bible, we would probably block these out between the selahs that are mentioned here and just deal with them a little bit at a time and go at a little bit of a slower pace. But this pause, this selah after verse 7 creates a voice change in the text. And it's David's pen, but it's God's voice. And he says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. We actually know that his eye is upon more than just us. His eye is upon everything he's called us into and everything he's calling us away from. In fact, when, when God says here in verse 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way it should go, it should ring true with the Jeremiah chapter 6 that I read earlier. Return to the good path. Return to the ancient ways and find rest for your souls. It should ring true and congruent with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that we, um, trust that, that we trust the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him. And he does what for us? He makes our paths straight. He knows where we are. He knows what we're coming from and he knows where we're going to. In fact, for many of us who are constantly wrestling with what is God leading me toward? What is he leading me toward in my vocation? What is he leading me toward in my relationships? What is he leading me toward in my passions? What is he leading me toward in my pursuits? Let it be known that, that to hear God's voice the best, it might start with your confession. I think we see that model here. It might start with your confession of like, God, I've been a little wayward. That the, 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 the verse in that song, um, the prone to wander Lord that, that we sing in the, in, the, in the hymn, prone to wander, is really true of all of us. In fact, in, in the book of Isaiah, it says that we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. But God is faithful to lay upon him, Jesus, the iniquity, the waywardness of us all so that we can rightly hear his voice, so that we can rightly be instructed and be in the know, so we can rightly be taught understanding, so that we can rightly be counseled and advised, not just what he's calling us out of, but what he's calling us toward. And be confident in this, church. What you know 10% of right now that seems risky and seems scary and might seem uncertain, God knows 100% of. He is not calling you toward a hopeful end. He is calling you toward a certain reality and a certain destination that will have pit stops between here and its ultimate reality and ultimate destination of a forever eternity with him. He, you might only know 10% of what he's leading you toward, but he has his eye on you and on where you're going. And then the Lord offers this, this gentle, real like encouragement to us. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding. Don't be like the horse or the mule without understanding. What understanding? We'll get to that. They must be curbed with bit and bridle. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts and knows and understands the Lord. Be glad in him, rejoice, 
O righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. We're going to unpack that as we close out today. Be not like the mule. Here's where I have to offer a confession myself. Um, I think, if I'm honest, a lot of times the stuff that moves in my heart, that moves, um, and maybe even historically more than currently, but has moved me into places of confession and repentance, is the feel like I'm supposed to, the bit and bridle in my mouth, being tugged toward it, whether it's from my own sin and shame wanting to say, oh, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to get back on the right track, or, 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 or this feeling of, of how I need to, to right the ship. You know, it's really my effort to right the ship and that God will, will bless that. But a, a horse that moves, I know we're in horse country here in Kentucky, but a horse that moves because of his bit and bridle doesn't move motivated by love. He moves motivated by force. In fact, it paints the picture that that uh, of a dug in uh, with his heels dug in, a mule with his heels dug into the ground that just doesn't want to be tugged, but eventually because of the pressure put on his mouth, because of the bit and bridle, he moves. He is not motivated by love or by confidence or by trust. He is motivated by agony and by pain and by discomfort and by force. And God writes in his word to us, we are not to be motivated by a sense of force or requirement, but we are invited to come to him as dearly loved sons and daughters with full understanding. We're not to be like the mule who doesn't understand. We're to be offered understanding that when we, because of our belief in the risen and reigning Jesus, approach the throne of the Lord, he doesn't see our iniquity with us. In fact, he's already covered it. As the truth in Colossians would say, that we are hidden in with Christ from God. Like we're hidden by the righteousness of Jesus. We are hidden. We have understanding. In fact, Paul uses this very text in Romans chapter 4 um, when he is unpacking what it means to, to recognize the justification of Jesus. In Romans 3, he, he drops this truth to us like, like this, for all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And but, but in verse 24, but are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a stay or as a patience from his blood, a covering of his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, that's his patience, because of his divine forbearance, he passed over all our former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In Romans 3, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we are justified by the work of Christ. And then as Paul continues to write in Romans 4, he says this, he quotes verse 7 and 8, blessed are, are those whose sins are forgiven or whose transgressions or lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man for whom God will not count his sin. And then you look at the very last verse of Romans chapter four, uh, verse 23 through 25. It says, but, but the words, it was counted to him, talking about Abraham being made righteous, talking about us being made righteous, were not written for his sake alone, but for also for ours. It was counted to him as righteous, so also for our sake. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who 
God raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, and who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised to our justification. We aren't like the mule that doesn't have understanding. We are dearly loved sons and daughters, sons and daughters that know our dad's business. And our dad's business was to put the weight of our sinful iniquity on his perfect and righteous and innocent son so that he could be just in his condemnation of sin in the life of Jesus and merciful for me and you. In fact, when we read the verse in 1 John 1, 9, we talk about confession. Confess your sins to the Lord and he is faithful and just to forgive you. He, him being just to forgive us isn't God winking at our sin and saying, oh guys, it's okay. Him being just to forgive us is pouring out his wrath on Jesus and saying, because Jesus stood and was exposed and was uncovered on the cross, you, friends, sons and daughters, because of your belief in his finished work for you, you are covered. So when is the good time to confess and repent? Now, why? Because be confident, be confident that you don't stumble into a throne room or you don't stumble before the, holy, the holiest of holies. You don't stumble before a perfect holy God with any baggage of your own sin. If you believe in Jesus, he poured it all out on his son so that you could understand his justice, his grace, and his mercy. He is just to forgive me and you because he was just to put the weight and the payment and the punishment of sin on Jesus. That's the understanding we live in. That 2 Corinthians 5 understanding. Um, that, that we, you know, we're, we're lacking righteousness, but we get to inherit and walk in the truth of Jesus' righteousness on our behalf. That's the understanding we live in. And that should move us to be people that say with confidence, really with the same emotion that Kurt sang the song, with joy overflowing, verses 11, that we can be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy, being made people that are upright in heart, not because we did the deed of confessing, but because our confession revealed that the sin that we dealt with, struggled with, and fought, and agonized over, and where I was embarrassed by and was motivated by and that created waywardness, the sin that did all that was fully paid for in the work of Christ. We can rejoice and be glad and shout for joy and join in those songs of deliverance because the one who leads them, the one who leads the choir of freedom anthems, as good as Kurt is, it's not Kurt, it's Jesus. And he does that over me and you. I think this is an important posture for us to take as individuals as we recognize what it means for us to walk in confession and repentance. But I think there's also a corporate posture we can take too. And I want to take just a moment and talk about what it looks like for us to live corporately in, in being people that confess and repent. You know, we are made to be reconcilers. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors that actually find our citizenship somewhere else, which we know to be heaven, but yet we're placed here to be peacemakers and peace bringers uh, and, and champions of peace here in this land that's not our home, but it's where we find ourselves. We're Ephesians 1 people tell us that, that we, the church, are going to be vessels of restoration. And in fact, the hope that we know is coming, the, the all things new, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, that's the inheritance that we know we live in and we don't have to wait. 
We don't have to wait to them to live in it. We can live in it right now. We can usher that in now. Isaiah 58, that we're to be repairers and restorers. But if I'm going to be honest, if those are the identities that we're called to walk in corporately, I'm going to be honest. And I'm going to say that I haven't always made every effort to do that with my brothers and sisters. I mentioned that in the video that we said. I've thought to myself, to myself before, if I were a pastor in the 1950s and 1960s, if I were a pastor in the Jim Crow era South, I know I would stand for these, these causes of justice and these causes of reconciliation and these causes of, of really of righteousness. I would stand, but I'm not. I can't go back to the 1950s and 1960s, but I am a pastor today. And the, the issues are related. They're not the exact same that they were in the 1950s and 60s. There have, been, there have been specifics that have changed, but I still have brothers and sisters that long for company, that long to be loved, that long to be heard, that long to, be, um, to find and, and feel justice. And we know as Christ followers that we will never find or stumble or, 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 or build or establish justice separate from the work of Jesus. We know that, but because we know where justice is authored and originated, because we are ambassadors of that kingdom, because we are ministers of that reconciliation, and we live that way here on earth. I mentioned in a video we shot about two brothers, Cain and Abel, that killed each other in the very first, one of the very first stories of the Bible, that sin was so good at its job that it immediately turned blood brother against blood brother. If it's so good to break DNA, how much more does it fracture and break? Um, people that didn't grow up in the same house, that didn't grow up in the same background, that didn't grow up in the same opportunities, that didn't grow up with the same perspectives, that don't share the literal same blood. If sin is so good at its job of breaking and distorting and perverting truth, and it did so in the first family, how much more does it do it in our world today? And the truth of the Cain and Abel story is when God encounters Cain, he says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain responds with the phrase, well, am I my brother's keeper? And it's the most ignorant phrase maybe uttered in the scriptures because the resounding answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. In fact, in, the, in Jude, a letter of the New Testament, we see that the word of God says that we snatch one another out of the fire, that we help keep each other from stumbling, but we ultimately trust in he who endures us to the end. And so what does repentance look like? If I'm confessing that I haven't always been my brother's keeper, that I haven't always made every effort, that just because I can't go back to the 1950s and 1960s and be a pastor, I can be one today. If we confess that, then I think we also bring repentance, that we're to be proactive and not reactive, that we correct those around us in light, not of social justice, but in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think of the story in Galatians, where Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles. And, and he was uh, really, you could take the, the effort, that he, the, the inference that he was discipling them. And his Jewish friend showed up and he immediately deserted the Gentiles and hung out with those of his kind. And Paul, in the book of Galatians, rebukes Peter and says that that action of forsaking one at the acquaintance of the other actually doesn't walk in step with the gospel of Jesus. Paul doesn't say, Peter, that was socially unjust. Paul says, Peter, that didn't look like you, re you recognized the gospel in that moment. 
we're going to be repenters, then we become correctors and live the full gospel life with our brothers and sisters, regardless of where we've come from or where we're going. And I think just like Josh encouraged us in the podcast, how else can we repent? We open our lives. We open our homes. We open our hearts to people that maybe we start with just people that don't share our last name. Maybe they live next door to us. Maybe they live down the road. Maybe they look like us. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're from different backgrounds and different beliefs and different parts of town. But we start by opening our lives, opening our homes, and opening our hearts. And then we also collectively and corporately repent by the way that we recognize that salvation and redemption go hand in hand. We never get redemption separate from salvation. And in fact, if there's anything that we need to be confident in today, it's this, that all that I mentioned about today's the day to confess and repent, if you don't believe in Jesus, then I would be terrified to approach the throne of God. But if you do believe in Jesus, if you recognize his work on the cross was for you and for the whole world, all that who believe might find life in his name, that's our verse from John, then you can go confidently knowing that he has provided a salvation that can never be touched or removed or ripped away from you again because of your belief in him. And if you've experienced that, then it's time to invite the rest of our world to experience that with us. And so do we seek redemption, reconciliation, and justice? Absolutely. We must, but we never do so separate from or apart from the work of salvation made possible only through Jesus. And so church, I don't know what you need to confess and repent today. I don't know if you need to confess and repent um, your personal sin or corporate sin, or we need to do both. But I encourage you, in light of Psalm 32, that we are people that recognize the places of our waywardness, and we go to the Lord in full trust and confidence that he always puts us on the right and better path, and that just like Psalm 1, we delight in his way and in his law. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you for uh, the realities that, that we get to walk in and be confident in. That I don't confess to an angry God. I confess to a singing God. Uh, I confess and, and repent toward a God that welcomes my confession and repentance, not a God that shames me for it. And Jesus, I pray that you just, uh, am, just download that truth into our hearts today, that your spirit would go forward and download that truth into our hearts, that we are invited to walk in confidence before the throne of the Lord, not in our effort, but because of yours. God, may we be people that today be the day that we acknowledge our sin, we acknowledge our waywardness, and we allow you to place us back on the right track. May we do that individually, and may we do that corporately, and may we do so to be, uh, to be those that usher in and welcome and invite redemption, um, not just in our lives, but for our entire world. In your holy and precious name we pray. 